You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell, and in this episode, we're talking advertising. What if I were to say that we're on the cusp of a global economic revolution, and it's not about technology, it's not about innovation, and it's got nothing to do with apps or Silicon Valley. And if you don't jump on board, you're going to lose out big time. The answer is staring you in the face, literally. It's women. Yep, females. Did you know that women make around 70% of domestic purchasing decisions? That's everything from mobile phone plans to food, deodorant, cars, and household insurance. Over 70%. It's amazing. So you'd assume, right, that advertising companies are all over this and relentlessly target women in their marketing campaigns. Um, wrong, amazingly. It turns out that marketing is one of the last bastions of male domination and often the default setting for gender targets in ads is very male. So, how is this so? How much opportunity are organizations missing out on by sleepwalking through this issue? Well, of course, you're about to learn the answer to all those questions and more. Beck Brideson is an advertising guru. She's a pioneer in the marketing to women's space. She's helping organizations understand how they can grab a piece of the $28 trillion global pie. And she joined me to tell me all about it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Beck Brideson. Beck Brideson, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. It is such a pleasure to be here. It's very nice to have you. And, and just as a little insight to my listeners. I was just talking to Beck and she was just listing all the episodes of the Team Guru podcast she's listened to. So I'm thrilled to have someone on board who actually listens to the podcast. That's great, Beck. Hey, um, let's get into your topic though, because this is interesting and this is going to be an episode that if you weren't in it, I bet you'd want to listen to. You say that we're on the cusp of a global economic revolution and if businesses don't catch on, they'll be swamped by those that do. Absolutely. And that disruptive force is the female economy. What's the female economy worth? Tell us all about the value of, of this disruption, this global economic revolution that we don't want to miss out on. Well, it's $28 trillion of the global consumer economy, which is estimated to be a total of $35 trillion but the bit that women are responsible for is $28 trillion. So what is that? Something like 70 75% of the global economy, William, women are responsible for making those purchasing decisions. Yeah, that's right. And look, basically, there's Ernst & Young say that, that within the next decade, women will be responsible for 75% of discretionary spend. You know, that's just not hard to believe. I obviously can only really judge by my own household. And even when I think back to when I grew up with mum and dad, 
Mum made most of the purchasing decisions. And in our household, my wife makes most of the purchasing decisions just because mainly I'm not really that interested. So I'm glad that she makes those. So when I hear those numbers around the decisions made by women and domestic purchasing decisions we're mainly talking about here, I think, it's just not that surprising. So why is it that it's been underestimated? Because it, it sort of makes perfect sense now that you tell me about it. Yeah, and, and so I, I think that's just historically the point that we're at in history where women are, not only are they the decision makers and the gatekeepers, like you said, with your own mum and dad of, you know, your mum was the person deciding what comes in their house with your wife, she's the one who's deciding. And it's not to say that men aren't physically pushing a trolley around and getting the groceries, but they're getting the Heinz tomato sauce or the Huggies nappies because that's what they consume in their household. And women are economically, they're also independent like they've never been before because, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, a lot of women were in the household still. And even before that, women were very much, you know, you think through the um, 18th century and early 19th, and 20th centuries, women were in the home, men were in the business. And so because men built business, there is a natural predisposition for that business to have been seen through the eyes of men or the male lens. And now that more women are influential and in the workplace, it's like there's a gap because we haven't ever thought to see it through a female lens now. Hey, I, I get that the role of the f- females in the workplace has changed significantly over the last couple of generations. Obviously, we we all understand that really clearly. But has that paralleled the purchasing power of women? Because I would have guessed that even back in the, say, the, the pre-70s, the 50s, 60s, where women were at home and, and dad went off to work, I would still have thought that women were making the vast majority of the purchasing decisions in the household. Is, is that not the case? Has their purchasing sort of power risen with their injection into the workplace in parallel with that? Yes. So they definitely were making those decisions. But where it's become now a state of influence is that they were making the decisions then. They're still making those decisions now but they're also independently wealthy because they're making their own income. So they're not just spending the husband or the household income, they're spending a lot more. Ah, ah, I get you. I totally get you. Okay, that's good. Well, we've established that. Women are making purchasing decisions. Not only do the facts back it up, and uh, and in your book, you uh, give us a number of facts and figures, which is great. And I, I, by the way, am terrible at remembering numbers, so I don't remember them but I know know I'm clinging to that between 70 and 75% of purchasing decisions that are made. And I completely swallow that. That's how it is in my house, if not more. That's probably how it was when I was growing up. And I know that anecdotally, the people I know well, it's probably a really similar kind of number. Get that, accept that. Why is it then? How how have we got it so wrong? Well, actually, it's not me. It's, It's you in the marketing world. How have you in the marketing world got it so wrong that while that's so obvious and so easy to swallow, why aren't you aiming advertisements at women? I mean, it just makes perfect sense to me. Well, we definitely are aiming advertisements at women and definitely in categories that women would 
be buying, say, in beauty and cosmetics and female fashion and footwear and, and all of those things that women buy for themselves. I mean, we're definitely doing a great job there. I guess it's more of the categories like automotive, which has traditionally been seen as, you know, males buy the cars, which is not the case. They do purchase them, but women influence 80% of all car purchases. And so it's also banking finance, utilities, some of those more generic categories that both males and females consume, telcos, holidays, they're the places where you see a lot of homogenization of gender. So marketers will make ads and they'll say, we're talking to men and women age, you know, 35 to 50 who live in these areas, who earn this income, and they they put gender in or they don't put gender into the consideration of segmentation. And that's where I'm pioneering in this area to say when you do look at gender and you do look at the different ways males and females behave, there's actually that's where you can find incremental growth or great growth by creating products, messages, communications, by being a business that actually says, hey, females, we recognize and we see you like never before. And it's now time for us to talk to you and have a relationship with you in a way that you want to have it. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. Hey, Beck, we'll come back to the way that we would talk directly to females soon because I'm really interested in the psychology of that, how we would pitch differently if we're really specifically targeting women as opposed to men or, as you say, that homogenous non-gender advertising. But before we do that, can we just ponder the marketing industry for a second, the advertising industry, which I know so little about, but I did watch Mad Men, so I'm sure that qualifies me in some way. I know all about Don Draper and the the world of Madison Avenue uh, there for a few seasons. Actually, really quite enjoyed that series. Don was pretty cool. Very, very male-dominated industry, though, in that post-World War II era. I'm guessing it's not that much different these days. And when you talk about the advertising industry pitching at homogenous gender, so not thinking specifically gender, from your book and from just common sense, I'm guessing when they think they're not pitching at a gender – they're automatically defaulting to males because that's who they are. And if an industry is dominated by males, they might even think they're not being overly male in the way they pitch stuff, but they are because that's their default. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Am I right? Is that the way the marketing and advertising industries work? And uh, what's the history of that? Yeah. So to reference Mad Men, you know, yeah, it's true. Not too much has changed from that time. And if you think about that, you know, the women were in the middle in the typing pool and the men were in the offices around the edges. Now, you know, business hasn't... I, I tell you what has changed though, Beck. I bet they, you no longer smoke and drink in your office during the day at work. That's right. Although when I first entered the industry, you know, there was a glass ashtray sitting on my desk and I, you know, I actually, I didn't smoke. And then I was like, well, Smoking seems to be the thing, so I did start smoking. And you're serious. You're not serious. In, when you entered the workplace, there was smoking in the workplace. Yeah, well, I tell you, the conversations that you'd have, even if you were smoking in the stairwell when you couldn't smoke at your desk anymore, they were the places where you'd pick up the gold dust. <laughs> so you know, it's like, what's going on? What briefs are happening? How do we? How do I get myself in on that pitch? 
So, um, you know, <laughs> it was peer pressure. On that topic, that whole madman thing of these guys drinking during the day at work, I mean, I know it's terrible for their health. And I always used to wonder, don't any of these guys exercise after at work? Clearly they don't. But the other thing was, you know, some days just getting absolutely hammered. And you would think that that would really loosen up the way that you do business, I guess. And, uh, you know, I'm not advocating it, bringing it back to the workplace, but it would make the workplace a bit looser. And as you say, even just those cigarette conversations that you have when you're sharing a smoke with someone in the stairwell, that's where real decisions get made and, and information is shared. Sorry, I digress. I just got all excited about the concepts of drinking and, and smoking at work again there via Madman. Back to you, Beck. Back to the real news. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you there because my first job in, in a big agency, I was in Sydney and they had a chef who would cook lunches for you. They had a gym. They had a bar that was open 24 hours a day. And that was the culture that everyone went out and they went out and they boozed at lunch. I didn't. I've never really liked drinking. So I was lucky, you know, I was sort of this next generation that had lunch El Desco, which meant, you know, went and got the food from the chef and ate at your desk. And I've never, I could never understand how do they come back to work and be productive. And that was where I really saw, you know, a dying breed leaving and people either adapted to the fact that, you know, we don't have busy lunches anymore and you work hard. And I guess that was when computers started turning up on your desks instead of ashtrays and PAs were no longer around. And there definitely was a change in culture. But what didn't change was the the numbers. And in uh, so I was in the creative department, writing ads, coming up with ideas, you know, solving business problems creatively and strategically. And I was one of three percent of women to actually reach the title of creative director. Um, so when there's only three percent of women coming up with the ideas, are you saying that? Of the creative directors, only 3% of them were women or of the women in the industry, only 3% of women became a creative director? Of the women in the industry, only 3% of them became a creative director. So what sort of percentage of creative people were women? There were, industry averages are around 25, 26% of creative departments. Right. So half the population gets a quarter of the representation. And at the same time, their gender are buying 75% of the products. Amazing. Great. Keep going. I'm getting a real picture of the advertising industry here. Well, I mean, even look at the Gruen transfer. It's uh, anchored by three men. Mm. And occasionally they have women on the panel. But, you know, the poster for Gruen transfer is three white guys. And it's really is an issue Very that is, yeah, the advertising industry is starting to see that maybe they're falling behind with diversity and inclusion and that when you just have white guys coming up with ideas for an audience of women, maybe that's why we're getting some of these, you know, well, here's some statistics about how women feel about advertising. 91% feel marketers and advertisers don't understand them. Only 3% of women are portrayed as managers or CEOs. And only 2% of women are portrayed as intelligent. Yeah, right, in advertising. Wow. Yeah, in the ads themselves. And then a recent research by the industry showed that there's 46% of women who have experienced sexual harassment, you know, talk about Weinstein coming to, you know, coming to life here, and 20% have been harassed more than once, and 64% of women feel vulnerable because they're women. 
So even the culture of the agencies can be pretty toxic for women and yet here they are coming up with ideas and ways to help clients sell their products to To women. women. So when you entered the industry in Sydney not that long ago, Beck, you don't look anywhere near as old as me, was there that toxic misogynist kind of environment that you're describing in your workplace? Yeah, totally. And look, I have been in the industry for 25 years and I probably am as old as you. And there were no HR departments and there was no nothing that you could do if, you know, you were encountering this behaviour. It was pretty much suck it up if you wanted to stay in the industry. And it was so hard to get into the industry. And especially there were so few jobs going around for women anyway. And if you were going to complain about something like that, then you weren't going to keep your job. And so it really became a, a way of, you know, negotiating your way around those situations, avoiding people who came back from boozy lunches. You know, the women really did learn how to try to survive those circumstances and how to, you know, put all their effort into doing great work and being recognized for that. So the workplace has changed slowly in parallel, I guess, with every other workplace and every other industry. And I've spoken to people from all types of industries on on this podcast. In fact, I, I had a great episode a little while ago about the mining industry and the way that's changed for women over the years. And I, I'm guessing the advertising industry has slowly changed. And And you can tell us about the way it is for women now who work in the industry. But I just want to recap about what we've established. We've established that women by far are the decision makers when it comes to what to buy. So therefore, it makes sense that marketers should be targeting women with the way they market. And you see that 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 revolution, that waking up and realizing who advertisers should be targeting is this next global economic revolution. We've also established that by default, the advertising industry has looked at the world through a male lens because that's who they used to be almost exclusively. So that's where we are now, Beck. And what I'm really interested in is what does a male ad, what does a female ad, what does a sector gender homogenous ad look like? I'm intrigued to know about the psychology that sits behind the way that we target different genders. So I'm guessing, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, in my mind, Marketing or advertising is education and persuasion in action. So you are very much thinking about the psychology of how people learn, take on board information, and then make decisions. Tell us about the the psychology behind it and what should I be looking for when I'm looking to decide whether marketing is targeted towards a man or a woman? Well, it is a very complex process. And so it's not I guess it, first it depends on which category are you selling and let's say it's a telco, let's say it's, you know, a mobile phone plan. Now you'd assume that 50, 50, you know, that's our population roughly. So 50% of men and 50% of women would be looking at this information and deciding which carrier they want to go with or which phone they're going to buy. And what they do is they create advertising that would be homogenous. So neither males nor females. So even if they have looked at the data to say what is actually our database split by gender, is it is the female of the household actually putting together the plans for the home and therefore she's the one who's choosing and she's the one whose name is on the database. So a lot of a lot of businesses get it wrong there because they just make an assumption that they're selling to households or to 
50%, males and 50% females. So really understanding the data of who you are selling to is the first step. The second step is actually acknowledging, well, if we're going to make communication that we hope resonates with males or females, then we need to understand males and females are different. They are physiologically different. They are biologically, and I'll say that's a B-U-Y, biologically different. The way, like you said before, you're not that interested in the stuff around what comes in and out of your home. It's just not on your radar. You've got other things that are interesting to you. So if you want to target men, then you'd use genres, ambassadors and techniques and you'd buy in certain programs and you'd really understand the world through a male lens. Can you give me an example of something that is a really successful advertising campaign that us, that we here in Australia would recognize that is clearly targeted at men and they do a good job and they, they use some real stereotypical men hooks? I would say any beer ad. Okay. What are the features of a beer ad that do that? I, yeah, okay. You talk us through that and then I've got another really obvious one that, uh, that I'll bring up. Okay. So you'll often see the great big classic beer ads in, you know, a test series or a football game or a rugby game or state of origin. You know, it's it's where they know there's going to be a large male audience, so they might sponsor it and then they might run their ads through it. And it'll have men who are enjoying the, the company of each other. There's camaraderie. There is, you know, boys stuff and they're talking and relating to each other and, you know, they might have all the kinds of guys that would drink the beer featured in the ad and sort of mirrored back to them. And they're big, amazing love letters for men by men to men. <laughs> they're fantastic. Beautifully ad, put. Great. Beautifully put. Big, amazing love letters by men, for men, to men. And I'm guessing that the gambling phenomena, which has just exploded in our face over the last 10 years, I bet they do a really good job of targeting men. I'm imagining they would be smart advertisers because there's such big bucks at stake and it's such a competitive industry now as well. And they're all selling essentially the same product, although they make desperate attempts to differentiate uh, with the way that you can bet. I'm imagining that that industry, and I'm no advertising guy and I'm no better, so I, I, I think I don't pay attention to them, but I'm guessing they do a really good job at targeting men men in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Yeah, and I mean, I've got two girls and they're 7 and 10 and, and if we've been watching programs and those ads come on and there's been a lot because down in Melbourne, the Spring Racing Carnival, they've been really pushing things and with the grand final recently and they use some really awful cliches. There's one ad where a guy is clothes shopping with his girlfriend and he pretends to feign interest and grabs some dresses off the rack and says, hey, honey, try these on. And while she's busy in the change room, you see him making betting. Now, my seven and 10-year-old girls could see the sort of inbuilt sexism in that. And they said, mommy, that's, you know, that's a really negative, you know, he's not a nice guy, is he? He's pretending. And, and so, look, maybe that appeals to that sort of, there is an empathy with men who know how frustrating the experience of clothes shopping with their partner is. So they're really talking to them in a language that they understand. It's not for that ad is obviously not for children and obviously not for females because it's it's really playing off a humour that males will relate to more than females. 
Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. Hey, you know, you were talking before about the number one. So we're talking about the ways that you think, you know, you you reach the, the right kind of campaign. Your number one was understanding the data. And I bet organizations are very good at knowing, say, let's say a telco. They would know names of people who have mobile phone data plans, girls or boys, men and women. They would know those numbers really easily. But I'm assuming it's a slightly different number to know who's making the decision. Because you might have a family of mum, dad, and a teenage boy, three mobile phone plans, two boys and a girl, but maybe mum has actually made the decisions on in all three cases. But Telstra's data shows two male accounts, one female account. So are they as good at understanding who is making decisions around purchasing as they are about understanding who ends up with the product? No, and you've just opened up a gap and highlighted a real fault in research and in that kind of data. And I've been working with it. Oh, that's what I do, Beck. <laughs> Find yeah. gaps. So this energy company have had household names and often, you know, perhaps the husband's name is on the credit card that pays the bill or perhaps the husband's name was historically on the energy plan and so when they look at their data they go oh we're talking to men and women so we'll just you know go after a homogenous audience but every woman knows that they know who is who is their healthcare provider who is their electricity and gas providers who is their telco provider because they have usually done the research and made you know made it happen made the connection happen and so that these are the parts where gender intelligence is about saying, well, when we look at the data, when we actually look at the buying process, when we think about our customer, let's think about the gender of them because men are from Mars, women are from Venus. We like different things. MRI scans show that a male brain lights up through the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere in a sort of vertical manner. So vertical through the left, vertical through the right, a lot of activity. The female brain, however, there's a lot of cross-activity between the left and right hemispheres. And that is when they're being read the same passage of text. So we know that men and women react differently and digest information differently. And they like, you know, do you love sex in the city or do you love Terminator? And I don't see many men say sex in the city was on their top 10 movie list. It's, you know, that they will, men and women will go and sit through a genre of their partner's choice but it's not the one that they'd prefer. So if we go... <laughs> not all men like Terminator either, I'd like to point out. Yeah, Beck, exactly. I'm I'll, sure you already know that. <laughs> give, me a, give me a better Sex in the City reference, you know. What is it now? Bad <laughs> Mums and The Hangover. Oh, is that a show? God, the sure hangover, it is. Well, Bad Mums is, uh, there's a number two sequel and Hangover is, uh, what, they're on number three now, The Hangover? Right, yeah, I know about Hangover. Hey, uh, so great, we've found that gap. Organisations know who's buying their product, but they, they don't necessarily know who's making the decision. But it's it's as though the world is cottoning on to that decision-making thing because you hear it now. Um, I, I love rugby league, and I know that soccer and AFL are onto the same concept they know the person at home making the decision about what their kids play are the mums. So they're very well aware that 
they need to be marketing their game at the decision maker at home, and that's mum. And you hear them talk about that on the footy show. And a number of years ago, when Paul Gallen threw the punch at Nate Miles that ruined rugby league, and uh, some listeners will know what I'm talking about, in State of Origin that were known for their fist fights, the captain of New South Wales threw a punch that was out of nowhere, wasn't expected, landed it flush on the face of a Queensland player. And after decades and decades, a hundred plus years of brawls in rugby league, all of a sudden punching is completely banned. And they call that the punch that ruined rugby league, tongue in cheek. It's actually tidied it up a lot. And that was very specifically targeted at mums because mums don't want to see that in a game where they're making the decision as to which one their son plays or their daughter plays. Is it soccer? Is it AFL or is it rugby league? They've got so much choice in winter, they had to tidy themselves up. So am I right in, it's my long way of describing and just an excuse to talk about rugby league, Beck, is the world waking up to the fact that mums are making and women are making a lot of decisions in the household? Yeah, I think they are. And look, I worked with AFL on the launch of their AFLW season this year, and they made a decision to bring that forward because they knew that timing was critical, that it was getting really competitive out there. Cricket had introduced the WBBL, and we're having starting to have success with growing new audiences. And the reality of how successful AFL was with women is that they attracted 70% of a new audience to their game. You know, if there was some discussion, who who was going to attend, who was going to come along, was it going to be diehard footy fans who were just going along to see the warm-up because they couldn't wait for the football season to start, but 70% of attendees had never even been to an AFL game before. So there's... New fans. Yeah, Build it and they will come. And that's not just for, that's across every category. You know, build it bespoke for women. Let women have their own version of the game or the product or, you know, whatever it is that you're selling. And women will respond and say, thank you. Like, now you see me. Now you actually get that I have needs. I have different needs to the ones that, you know, have been traditionally pushed onto us. And we're embracing this. And sales figures go up and, Loyalty, you know, starts at that sort of grassroots level, as you're saying, with mum. And, you know, it's a, it's absolutely a game changer. Hey, that's such a great point, that concept of bringing in the women's league in cricket and, and AFL and whatever other sport it's happening in. They're tapping into a whole brand new audience. You can improve the traditional AFL and NRL and, and tinker at the edges and make it slightly better. And some fans will either come or go, but essentially those fans are sort of locked in. People have decided if they like AFL or NRL long ago in their life, but you bring in a whole new game, you're tapping into 50% of the market that was not really targeted with the old game. That's that's genius. I, I love it from a marketing point of view. It makes perfect sense. Hey, but I'm interested in the last, again, five, 10 years, the women's sport really has lifted in profile. Women's cricket is getting, I mean, it, it sometimes leads the news when the sports section comes on in the news, especially recently. We're recording this just after Elise Perry scored 200 in the women, in the test against England. I mean, that was actually big news. It wasn't just token on the side, we'll tell you a little bit about what the chicks are up to. It was actual news. And the same as the WAFL and the same as the the Women's Big Bash League, when it comes around, it is fantastic to watch. Are they marketing that at women, really? 
are they doing a good job in from through your eyes as a, as an advertising consultant, or have they lifted the traditional ways they they advertise those games for men for the last X number of generations and just put female faces in the ads? I think it depends on which game you're talking about, which organisation, which league, and and you know I like to think of everyone as being on a journey with the um, introduction of a female lens into their business. And someone like Cricket has done extremely well in making sure that the pay parity happened between the male and female players. And that's unprecedented. and It's not the same in, in any other sport. So they've done a really great job there. Have they created work for women that is – I'm not sure about that yet. I don't think I've seen anything that I've gone, you're now talking to me, and I don't love Cricket. My husband's a total – cricket tragic but it's pretty difficult to get me to think I'll take my family along to the game because I don't yet feel I'm a welcome member of their community whereas AFL I definitely felt hey you're talking to me the way you are presenting your campaign and your work is talking to me in a way it's saying see what we create that was their line see what we create and it actually getting to know the players and the players' stories and the way they they didn't just pink and shrink the men's game. They really created a strong identity and purpose around. So, And by pink and shrink, I'm assuming you mean take what already existed for men and put them in pink jerseys and make everything just slightly smaller. Is that the, the old way of doing stuff for girls? Yeah, so even um, Nike is a great example of that. When they decided to create a women's range – they just made a smaller version of the men's shoe and they did compete quite well against some of the other big names, you know, let's say 30 years ago. They did well against Adidas and Reebok and and then as time went on and players like Lululemon started to enter the market and women's athletic wear became a, a big category, Nike lost sales and when they had a good hard look at why are we losing traction, they realised they'd done the pink and shrink so they actually brought female athletes in and they studied the female foot and they discovered that in there were completely different constructions and that women's feet were bigger in some areas, smaller in others. And when they actually made the mould from a female athlete's foot and created a better product, surprise, surprise, you know, Nike grew in the women's business. They grew it so much that it now overtakes the men's business and it is their growth strategy. So, you know, a great example of someone who you'd think, hey, they're a great big leader in category. You'd think they'd know better. Well, it took them a while to discover. Yeah. And so they were, they were just as effectively doing tokenism. The pink and shrink thing to me sounds very tokenistic. All right, look, this is great stuff, Beck. I love it. Now, I interrupted you. You were talking us through a list. Number one was understanding our data, and we we talked about the fact that a lot of organizations don't really have the right data. They're, they know who buys their stuff or who ends up with their stuff, but they don't necessarily know who's making the decision. You said number two was understand the gender difference, and uh, you did a great job at describing what a typical male ad would be. I wonder if at some point you can describe for us what a typical female ad would be, but I also want to give you the go-ahead to, to keep going through that list as well. Yeah, so, you know, there's what is the size of the prize that you're potentially missing out on? You know, if you, once you analyze how many women are actually buying from your category, 
how big is that and what would it be worth to increase it by 10%, 20%, you know, and on. And if you're not, if you don't have enough females in your category and you know that there's a, a great big pool out there, then it would make sense to go, okay, how would we create and focus and target and better understand females in order to get a relationship with them? And so then you'd have to look at, well, what's in the way of that? What is it about our business or our product or the way we sell and market that's prohibiting us from getting more market share? And then I know when from working with marketers for the last 25 years, I know that they know what that, you know, at a gut level, they know what is it that's stopping us. Sometimes it's an internal culture. It might be the fact that they have to report up the line to a bunch of, you know, and I don't mean this offensively, but white, a bunch of white men who don't necessarily understand how to look through a female lens. They understand business really well. They're fantastic leaders. So you mean, you mean middle-aged white men don't know everything? Well, if yeah, as long as you're not offended. Is that what you're breaking to me? <laughs> oh, jeez. I'm so I'm very offended by that, Beck. But carry on. I'll let you stay on the show regardless. Okay. So there are a number of times when I have gone, you know, I've been asked to come in and work on a project and it gets all the way up to the board and the board are 10 white guys and they just don't get it and they don't understand it. And even though, you know, there could be 30% growth after this, they still say, no, because we don't understand it, it's not happening. So, you know, marketers and business owners that want transformation and that know that something's wrong, but maybe they can't put their finger on it entirely, if you dig deeper, you know, it could be, so it could be internal culture. It could be that the product's wrong. It could be that they can't do anything about the product that's wrong because manufacturing is an issue. So really looking at what is getting in the way And then finally, what lens does your business use or favor? So is it run by men and yet you're selling products to women? And so maybe somewhere along the chain of command, information is not flowing through or ideas are getting stopped because they're defaulting to their traditional lens, which is going to be nine times out of 10, a traditional male lens, because that's what business was built by. Fantastic. I love that list. All right, let's go through it. Understand the data, who's buying your stuff, who's making decisions. Number two, get that there's a gender difference and understand what that gender difference is. Number three, work out what the size of the prize is. Is it worth us really investigating how to market properly to females? And if so, what are the barriers to us accessing that female market share? And lastly, what lens does our business currently favor and use? What do we default to if we have a really good look at ourselves? And hint, if you look around the boardroom and there are 10 middle-aged white guys, most of them probably balding, then chances are you're defaulting to a, a male lens through which you're, you're trying to push your product. Have I got that right, Beck? Is that a, is that a summary of what you said? Yeah, you have. And look, a lot of guys will say, or a lot of organizations and businesses will say, but hang on, we've got females in marketing or we've got a female head of HR or, you know, we should have this covered because we've got women in the business. But my contention is that there are there are women in the business. I mean, there aren't as in a business in a C-suite, there aren't as many as we'd like to see, but we're getting there. But often the women who have come through and climbed up that ladder have had to use the same default lens as men 
because that's how they've been able to assimilate and to um, work within the culture of the business. So I myself say I'm a recovering misogynist because I learned how to think like a man to become a creative director because I had looked at the skills and what it took to climb that ladder to become a creative director and I went, they're the behaviours, that's the way you talk, think, act and I modelled on that behaviour. And when I started my own agency, I liberated myself from that and said, well, I want to see through what is authentic to me. I want to sell products to women in a way that's going to resonate with them. I don't want to make the cliched dumb jokes about women or show them in powerless positions and not as the CEO. And I want to appeal to them emotionally, not just appeal to them on the rational reasons that toilet duck gets under the rim. Like, what is it about having a clean bathroom that emotionally resonates with women? Because it sure ain't about, you know, how effective it is. It, It really is. What does it say about me and the sort of family I run to have a clean bathroom? Beck Bryson, I, I love the way you put that, a recovering misogynist, because you had to learn how to think like a man to survive and prosper in an industry that was so male-dominated when you entered it. Look, I found our conversation really fascinating tonight. Thank you so much for being with me, Beck. It was lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. And that was Beck Brideson. I really enjoyed our chat. She opened my eyes to a weird phenomena, that default male setting of marketing. And it's all around us. I'll never look at ads the same way again. And I loved her advice to business. Number one, understand your data, not just who ends up with your product, but who makes the decision around buying. Number two, of course, understand gender difference. Male and females, they're different. They think differently. They're attracted to different concepts. You've got to understand what those are. Number three, get to know the size of the prize. What's the female market worth in your industry? Number four, identify the barriers to obtaining female market share. And finally, number five, have a good look at your organization and work out your default marketing flavor. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Beck on the Lessons Learned page from this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.